This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning, and welcome to today's discussion on U.S.-Cuba relations under the Biden administration being organized as part of the Institute of America's Hemisphere and Transition webinar series. On behalf of the Institute, I am pleased to join, have you join us today. To begin, I, uh, I want to first thank um, the sponsor of our webinar series, the San Diego civic leader and philanthropist, Malin Burnham and the Burnham Foundation. I also want to thank University of California Television for partnering for, uh, with the Institute on this series. Our first speaker is um, Richard Feinberg, professor of Latin American studies um, from the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. Uh, Richard is also the author of the book, um, Open for Business, um, The New Cuban Economy. Okay, thanks very much, Richard. Listen, it's a real honor to be among so many distinguished colleagues, uh, all of whom have been following Cuba and U.S.-Cuban relations uh, for many years. Uh, so I'm gonna, I've been asked to talk a bit about the Obama administration and what it tried to do uh, vis-a-vis Cuba relations. Uh, President Obama used to emphasize that he was born after the Cuban Revolution of 1958-59. And from his point of view, uh, the very harsh, uh, longstanding U.S. Uh, embargo against Cuba was a relic of the Cold War. Uh, and it was about time to begin to modernize U.S.-Cuba relations. Uh, he was under no illusions as to what might happen. Uh, he understood that the one-party state system was deeply entrenched in Cuba. Uh, he did not expect there to be an all of a sudden a liberal democratic capitalist system emerge from one day to the next. He understood it would be gradual. Uh, in fact, uh, he had what I would refer to as a policy of, of uh, strategic patience, that it would take time, that a policy of gradual opening uh, would strengthen reformers within Cuban society and within the Cuban government. Uh, and uh, that change would have to come from within uh, not from Miami or from uh, the United States. Uh, but he had what I would refer to as strategic or structural optimism. That is to say, structural optimism. That is to say, if a relatively small country, 11 million people right in the Caribbean, off the coast of the United States, in within uh, a, a essentially democratic Caribbean, were to be exposed to travel, uh, to, to uh, investments, to commerce, uh, to cultural uh, exchanges, that that would gradually produce uh, an opening uh, in Cuba. We couldn't see exactly where it was going, uh, but that Cuba would evolve over time. So that was his basic strategy. Uh, what did he actually do? Uh, first, he began to allow travel, first by Cuban-Americans, so they could visit friends and relatives on the island. They could send remittances to their families for their own sustenance and also to invest in the uh, emerging small-scale enterprise. And then gradually, he allowed a, a, a wider group of Americans to travel under something which was referred to as people-to-people diplomacy. The idea was you couldn't just go to Varadero and hang out on the beach as an American, but uh, you had to be part of a, a cultural exchange whereby you would learn something and also impart something of American values, perhaps American consumer capitalism uh, to uh, your Cuban hosts. Uh, under that program, uh, 
And this only occurred for two years, and it's important to emphasize. He really began the opening at the end of his administration with just two years left. Uh, by the time he was done, though, we had something like uh, 600,000 Americans, including Cuban Americans, uh, visiting the island on an annual basis, and those numbers were increasing. So, so just visit, visits, uh, travel uh, was a big part of the, of the opening. Uh, he also thought that uh, the emerging private sector in Cuba, uh, small-scale enterprises the Cuban government was gradually allowing, uh, would uh, benefit from the dollars being spent uh, by visiting Cuban Americans uh, and American citizens. Uh, and those numbers did rise rapidly. So by the end of the Obama years, you had something like 600,000 uh, small-scale enterprises uh, opening up uh, on the island. Uh, the idea was that these were green shoots of uh, a more independent, pluralistic, uh, market-oriented uh, Cuba. Embassies were opened up, uh, more normal diplomatic relations, uh, cultural exchanges, uh, immigration controls, uh, all of those uh, were moving forward. Uh, I say as a result of all of these measures, again, incipient, only two years after almost 60 years of ongoing hostility, uh, Cuba, I would argue, did begin to change. That is to say, the Obama measures were having some impact on the island. I mentioned the growth of the private sector, which was accelerating. That was really giving birth to what I would refer to as an emerging middle class, maybe 20% of the population or so, well-educated, increasingly interested in consumerism, and some degree of cultural and political pluralism. Um, I would say on the island, which I visited frequently, you could feel that people were more willing to express their opinions, including criticism of the government at the individual level. Still, the government did not allow uh, organized collective activity in opposition to the regime. Uh, also, Cuba increasingly engaged in normal diplomacy, uh, working to bring about a peace accords in Colombia with other countries. Uh, and engaging really with the rest of the world, including, most importantly, with what they had considered their strategic enemy, which was the United States. Now, importantly, the Obama administration took most of these measures unilaterally. They were not, for the most part, negotiated. It was not tit for tat. We make this concession, you make that concession. Because the administration felt that the measures that it was taking, opening to Cuba, were in the U.S. national interest and did not require reciprocity, but rather would bring about changes on the island which were beneficial to Cubans and to the United States. So there was a lot of progress. Now, at the same time, uh, the Cubans were hesitant in some respects. Uh, for example, they were not really ready to negotiate uh, uh, on the expropriations of about $2 billion of U.S. property that had been expropriated at the beginning of the revolution. Uh, they began talks, but uh, they were not really proceeding uh, apace. And I think that was a missed opportunity uh, because had those claims been settled or on their road to being settled, that would have created a bigger constituency in the United States for normalization. The Cubans said, uh, could you... Um, we're, we welcome foreign investment in general. There already was some foreign investment from uh, the Europeans and from Canadians, modest amounts, but still they were there on, in principle. And in principle, the Cuban government said, we welcome U.S. foreign investment as well. Uh, however, not many projects were approved. Why not, you might ask? The Cubans uh, certainly needed the capital and technology and access to markets. And there are a number of explanations, uh, bureaucratic inertia, certain fears about being dominated by large-scale companies. 
But also, let's keep in mind the expectation in Cuba, as around the world, is that Obama was going to be followed by Hillary Clinton, not by Donald Trump, and that there would therefore be plenty of time uh, to move forward on uh, normalization and an opening uh, to, the global, uh, to the global economy. There were also some people on the, on the island uh, who did fear that a commercial opening was a form of a Trojan horse. That, that, that it would then lead to more pluralism, uh, to more opening, to more U.S. influence, to influence by the large Cuban-American diaspora in South Florida, and that this would endanger the essential ish, uh, interests of, of the Cuban regime. And so those more orthodox elements wanted a very go-slow uh, go slow approach. I also think one could suggest that Obama perhaps overplayed his hand a bit in his historic visit uh, in March of 2016, uh, when uh, he met, among other things, with a large group of private sector entrepreneurs on the island. And perhaps that meeting, which was very uh, exciting uh, and uh, and uh, raised expectations on the island, uh, also frightened the Cuban establishment. And as soon as Obama left the island, actually you could feel a certain, a certain retrenchment, that, uh, a certain chill uh, in the air with regard to the private sector and, and US uh, Cuban relations, even then, well before Obama, uh, well before Trump. Still though, the overall message that I would leave you all with uh, is that uh, in just a short period of two years of Obama, uh, after a period of almost 50, 60 years of ongoing uh, extreme hostility, you did begin to see uh, a gradual opening in the economy, uh, in culture, uh, that there were some green shoots uh, emerging, which suggesting that Cuba might gradually evolve towards a more market-oriented socialism, uh, more open to the outside world, with at least some degree of pluralism uh, on the island. Uh, and that's where it was uh, just before the election of Donald Trump. I leave it to the other panelists to pick up on uh, the Trump administration, the shock that that was to U.S.-Cuban relations, and now uh, the opportunity under Biden and what that might produce. So thank you all very much. Looking forward to the rest of the panelists and then the, the conversation among us. I think at this point, I'd like to introduce uh, Michael uh, J. Bustamante, who is Assistant Professor for History at Florida International University. Uh, Michael is the author of Cuban Memory uh, Wars, a Retrospective Politics uh, in Revolution and Exile. It's great to be um, with um, so many distinguished colleagues, as, as Richard mentioned previously, um, and, and to be with you all to talk about a subject that um, is certainly very important to me and close to the work that I do day in and day out. So Richard has, I think, set the table nicely for um, me to provide at least a, a brief overview, as I see it at least, um, of how the Trump administration um, approached U.S.-Cuban relations and, and kind of where that left us um, or where that has left us now that there's a new administration um, that has just taken office, um, obviously, a few couple months ago. So the, the starting point for my remarks, I think, is to actually rewind a bit, um, you know, before um, the Obama era even, and even um, before, and certainly before Trump was, was a candidate. Um, and that's just to remind everyone that um, of, of some very interesting reporting that was done in the, in the context of the 2016 campaign, which showed that, the, in fact, the, the Trump organization, um, dating to the 1990s, uh, at different moments had been interested in exploring uh, investment opportunities in Cuba. 
um, including at a time when it was essentially uh, unauthorized for U.S. companies to do that kind of a thing, right? Um, I think we have to understand, and, and I don't think I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, that um, for President Trump, um, the Cuba issue, as it kind of took shape in the 2016, was not really a matter of, of principle or deep foreign policy interest or preoccupation. In fact, there was some reporting done um, in the moments of the transition between the Obama administration and the Trump administration um, about conversations that, that happened between um, the, the outgoing president and the incoming one, um, in which uh, Trump essentially said that he thought Obama's opening to Cuba was, quote unquote, fine. Right. And yet in the context of his campaign, a few months um, prior, he had come out publicly against um, Obama Cuba policy. Um, he had called for canceling uh, uh, the, the quote unquote Cuba deal. And this, I think, was a, a sort of, um, you know, perhaps not surprising position for a Republican candidate to take, but um, a surprising one in the context of where public opinion, opinion polling was um, in South Florida at that time. Right. Because I think to, in, insofar as U.S. Cuba policy is not just a foreign policy issue, but a domestic policy issue, that domestic policy issue matters mostly in South Florida for sort of the electoral calculus in, um, in an important swing state. Um, uh, and it was an interesting bet to make because at the time, the polling on U.S.-Cuban relations showed that really the Obama administration had kind of brought a significant portion of the Cuban-American community along with him. There was a sort of uh, recognition, again, not universal, but substantial, that the old approach uh, had failed, had not really resulted in much um, in improving the lives of the Cuban people, and that it was time for, for, for something new. And so even as many Cuban-Americans watched aspects of the Obama opening and felt a little um, perhaps uneasy about some of the, the things that were happening, and um, I think above all sort of the hype around it, right, a certain exoticizing of this place that they called home, um, there was also a recognition that, that you know, um, perhaps a policy of opening was the lesser of, of, of two evils um, from, from their point of view. And so it was a curious bet for the Trump campaign to make to sort of uh, link part of their campaign in Florida to the canceling of Cuba policy because the Obama policy had a substantial amount of support. And B, we know from the polling that when you ask Cuban-Americans um, what are the most important issues that guide their vote? Uh, Cuba is pretty much last on the list and has been that way for, for a long time. Um, uh, nonetheless, it appears that um, you know, the, 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 the Trump campaign made that premise of canceling Obama's Cuba deal part of its campaign. Um, and they, they were able to sort of um, click up the numbers of Cuban-American support that, that the Republican candidate received as compared to um, the, the last election, but not dramatically either, which again suggested that there was still somewhat of a constituency for, uh, for the opening itself. Um, so what did Trump do when he got into office? Well, he didn't wait incredibly long. Um, in the summer of 2017, he came down to Miami. He announced that he was, as he had promised, canceling Obama's Cuba deal. The thing that I think was interesting about it is that at least at first, the po sort of policy rollback of Obama's opening was, I would argue, more, more about rhetoric than it was uh, about substance. In fact, despite a kind of rhetorical change of 180 degrees, 
um, many aspects of the Obama administration's policy, including some of the travel allowances, you know, ended up remaining in place for a, a couple years, the first two years of the Trump administration. It wasn't really until 2019 um, that the Trump administration began to implement what it called a maximum pressure campaign, in this case, both on Cuba and the government of Venezuela, um, with the idea that both governments are closely linked um, we would like to get rid of both of them. And so we're going to come down uh, hard on both of them and try to affect their economic bottom line and potentially sort of separate them from one another um, and, and uh, you know, perhaps uh, cause political change. Right. Um, it's safe to say that the maximum pressure campaign, which have in involved many, many, many measures um, and, and really ended up unwinding almost everything that Obama had done. Um, was the most represented the most intense period of sanctions on Cuba in years, um, if if not ever, um, and you know the 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 reality of this, I think, no matter how you look at it, um, is the reality of U.S. sanctions policies, um, especially ones that are unilateral, as the Cuba sanctions are, um, is the reality of those policies everywhere. That that uh, you know Cuban citizens are made collateral damage of these policies. So when you cut off travel to the island from the United States, you may be impacting some of the flow of hard currency into the Cuban government's coffers, but you're also getting in the way of some of those entrepreneurs that, that Richard was talking about who had sort of begun to, um, you know, see hope for um, a, a better standard, standard of living. Um, so one thing that I would say, though, is that, you know, in the backdrop of this um, sort of unwinding of the Obama opening and really a return to the language and policies of, of isolation and hostility, the likes of which we hadn't seen in many, many years, um, you know, it's important to keep in mind sort of what was going on in Cuba. And I would argue sort of picking up on a couple of things that Richard was saying that, uh, you know, Cuba was not necessarily doing everything it could to to help its case. Um, I think Richard's right that even before Trump was in office, the Obama um, opening and particularly that presidential visit, there were aspects of it that really didn't sit well with certain elements of, of the Cuban system. And so you felt, as Richard said, a kind of a, a, a pushback, um, a, a, a grabbing on to an argument that, in fact, the Obama opening was just more of the same. Um, it was regime change by other means and therefore was to be um, resisted. Um, as as much as as welcomed, or or at least to uh, be be handled handled cautiously, and it's it's not insignificant then that when Trump comes in and then sort of reverts to a more overt sort of language of regime change, I think um, you know the 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 siege mentality um, reemerges in even more dramatic form, and that has uh, you know particular effects um, in the domestic political landscape in Cuba. It's um, not a coincidence, I, I I don't think that in the summer of 2017. Um, uh, sort of shortly after the Trump administration's initial announcement that it was canceling the Cuba deal, the Cuban government announced a freeze, uh, which ended up lasting for about a year and a half of the issuing of new licenses for the private sector um, uh, in order to uh, you know, deal with irregularities, um, accusations of corruption, um, and, and in a way that perhaps made sense in, 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 in some aspects, but also seemed to make the private sector sort of a um, uh, the scapegoat for, for many other problems that were more structural in, in the Cuban economy. The Cuban state also, in the years of the Trump administration, implemented uh, a number of measures in sort of more the political cultural space, um, a couple of uh, decree laws that really were seen as kind of throwing cold water over uh, an independent and, and creative and um, 
sort of contestatory, if I can use that word, sort of artistic space. Um, decree laws about, uh, you know, sort of threatening that the use of uh, information technology, the internet, which was expanding in Cuba at the time for, for purposes that were uh, counter the goals of the Cuban state could um, uh, sort of earn one a fine, um, if, if not, if not worse. Right. So, so there's a kind of a, a political closure that's happening inside Cuba in these years. And on the one hand, you know, I, I, it's part of a kind of a, a, a back and forth that has happened over the years in Cuba since 1959 between periods of relative openness and periods of relative, um, well, the opposite, right. Um, but, but, uh, it also, I think, uh, is true that the Trump administration's sort of return to sanctions policies created an enabling environment for that kind of return to um, a certain closed-mindedness to really grab grab hold. So let me just conclude with a couple of thoughts about sort of um, the results of the, the Trump era policies. Um, did the Trump policies work? This is the, the sort of standard by which U.S.-Cuba policies are always judged, although not always on equal terms. Um, I can remember that those who were opposed to the Obama opening began judging it for not having worked even, you know, sort of a couple months after it was implemented. And yet often the defenders of hardline sanctions don't have to um, hold their own policy prescriptions up to the same standard of efficiency. So if you're, if, you're, if you're judging these policies, the Trump policies, that is, by what they set out to accomplish, which was nothing short of leading to the toppling of the Cuban government and a democratic spring, you know, the answer is no, they did not work. Um, but I think the more germane question that's taking shape now is did they at least create an environment that sort of um, put enough pressure on the Cuban government to um, re-up certain kinds of economic reform, if not other kinds of reforms. And that has to do with some interesting developments that began to take shape in the summer of, of this past year in 2020. Um, so after this period in which, as I mentioned, there had been kind of a, a certain return to closed-mindedness or, or, con or conservative thought with regard to the private sector, in July of 2020, the Cuban government announced that it was sort of, again, going to move forward with economic reforms that had been pending for a long time. Um, even more space for the private sector, a currency unification to deal with a dual currency system that is a very complicated uh, topic, um, and, and potentially going beyond what the Cuban government to now has called self-employment to actually legalizing things like small and medium-sized enterprises, right, to, that they, they would have sort of legal recognition in a way that they hadn't before. And so I think defenders of the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign, some have been making the argument that the, the squeezing of the, the, the last few years of the Trump um, Trump administration really sort of pushed the Cuban government into having to take these economic reform measures that they didn't want to take. And that, I think, is really um, uh, uh, an argument into which I, I think one could poke a lot of holes. Um, the biggest one is that, of course, 2020 was also the year of the COVID-19 pandemic, which for an economy like Cuba's, which depends so much on, uh, on tourism, right, um, really took a, took a hard hit. And so I think that the return to reform is less a result of Trump pressure than it is a result of the exigencies of the, um, of the, of, of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, right? And, and if you'll indulge me just another minute, I promise, um, you know, the one place where I think arguably the Trump policy worked, quote unquote, was in South Florida in terms of political messaging. Right. We saw in the last election cycle a pretty significant swing of Cuban-American voters toward the Republican Party. We saw we've seen a pretty significant swing in public opinion toward um, more pro-sanctions policies. But even there, there's ways to sort of uh, poke, poke holes in that. Cuba remains the lowest priority issue for voters. So it's not as if the swing towards Trump was driven exclusively by Cuba policy at all. And so I'm happy to, to go more into this, the South Florida political context. Um, but that, that all sets up, I think, a, a complicated environment 
uh, politically for the possibility of, of, of re, uh, retaking up uh, a policy of normalization under the Biden administration. On the one hand, sort of the arguments for doing what Obama did are all still there. On the other hand, the political dynamic has changed in South Florida. Um, and, and I think we'll have a lively discussion as to, um, you know, whether that should matter uh, much for the calculation of, of foreign policy and in the battles between perhaps the foreign policy heads and the domestic policy heads in the, in the White House who are thinking about uh, electoral results. Thank you, Michael. We are now going to hear from Javier Corrales, chair of the political science department at Amherst College and co-editor of the book, The Politics of Sexuality in Latin America, a reader on GLBT rights. He will analyze changing demographics in Cuba and the current status of Cuban civil society, as well as increasing economic inequalities within the country, as well as Cuban LGBT politics. Javier. Thank you very much, May. Um, and thank you, uh, uh, Richard, for the invitation to uh, share my mic with the most prominent thinkers on Cuba. I feel very humbled to be in the company of, of, of such uh, wonderful speakers. Um, I, I think I want to talk uh, about why we have not seen a Cuban spring um, despite uh, uh, so many different efforts over the years, not just Obama uh, and Trump, but even before, what's keeping this where it is? Why is it that this is the one super stable locking time place, even though there have been openings? Um, Richard spoke about the opening of the private sector and uh, and. and um, uh, Meg, uh, 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 Dr. Cran has spoken about the opening to the religious sectors, and um, and for a while it seemed like there was going to be an opening even to the LGBT community of all of all groups, but for some reason things are not happening. Here's my my argument, and then I'll develop it for ten minutes. Um, we're focusing too much on the embargo that the United States places on Cuba, and less on the. Ted Henkin uses this term, the embargo that the Cuban state places on civil society. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Um, of all the freedoms that the Cuban state represses, the one that it represses the most, without exception, systematically, without hesitating, is the freedom of association. It represses this freedom more so than, say, for example, the freedom to speak. You can go to Cuba, and as Richard was saying, and hear Cubans complain and say things that you would have never imagined. And you may be tempted to think that you are in a democracy, given how much people now speak. They seem to have lost a little bit of their fear. What you cannot do in Cuba is to grab your cell phone and text friends and invite them to come to your house or do a Zoom session to talk about your complaints. That's when the Cuban government acts. It is absolutely terrified of political organizing. The Constitution doesn't have this problem. This is a problem that appears in the so-called Código Penal of Cuba. 
Many times we think that the Constitution is the, uh, uh, I guess because we are used to thinking of constitutions and democracies, uh, as the, the most important document. But in Cuba, it is the Código Penal, which essentially bans freedom of association. It has an article that says, if you want to have a society in Cuba, you need to register it with the state and you have to agree to important terms. So it is very difficult for civil society to emerge in an independent fashion. And this is the key term. And if there is any attempt, the government quickly acts. Now, let me say a little bit uh, about the, the, the history of uh, uh, this uh, 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 restriction on freedom of association, or as uh, Ted Henkin would call it, the second embargo. Um, yes, there was a bit of an opening in the 1990s. The first one was to the Catholic Church, and this was absolutely significant, shocking, and to this day, it has been it has remained in place. And perhaps one could argue the the, the small uh, small scale private sector are the two important exceptions. But uh, we've already talked. Uh, Michael spoke a little bit about the restrictions on the private sector. Let me say a little bit about the restrictions on the religious sector. Um, with the Catholic Church and McCrean, who's the dean on religious uh, uh, studies in Latin America and especially Cuba, uh, um, I don't know if you will fully agree, but with the Catholic Church, what ended up happening is that um, the church was so afraid of losing the spaces gained that it acquired a very toned-down response to the regime. Um, McCrean talks about... Cuba is no Poland in reference to the fact that in Cuba, in, in Poland, the Catholic Church emerged as this powerful contestatory group that eventually challenged the communist regime. For a number of reasons, the Catholic Church decided not to do this. Nevertheless, it created this space and they want to preserve it. And this makes them a little bit conservative. Then comes a large number of evangelicals. In Cuba, historically, evangelicals had been promoters of uh, political freedoms. But what has happened with the evangelical community in Cuba is that because it is less centralized than the Catholic Church, the state has split this community into a group that has lost its autonomy and another group that is operating almost marginally. And the deal with the, Catholic, the evangelical church that has lost its autonomy is we'll let you work, but you have to continue to support the most important policies of the Cuban regime. And that means you cannot lend your support to any civil society that seems independent. So what has happened in Cuba is that civil society groups are trying to emerge. The LGBT community is an example of a group that was trying to emerge for a while, it made inroads. It had none other than the support of the daughter of Fidel's successor. The daughter of Fidel Castro was fully behind them in so many ways. But the moment that these groups start to acquire a level of a, a, a certain degree of independence, the regime gets nervous. Now, the story is a little bit more complicated than that with the LGBT community because what has happened is that the LGBT community, which was one of the few groups of civil society, when it was searching for societal allies, it could only go to either the private sector, which was weak, 
or these religious groups that were not that weak and had quite a bit of space, but for a number of reasons were very hesitant to support the group. And I'm not talking about their social conservatism. I'm talking about these religious groups that have been so nervous about um, being in bad terms with the regime. Now, the LGBT community, therefore, did as have, and this is the problem that all civil society groups have in Cuba that are trying to be independent. They don't have patrons in society to support them. The LGBT community was an even double orphan because the only two potential groups that could have supported them, the Catholic Church and the evangelical groups, were also hesitant to support them because, of course, of their doctrinal homo and transphobia. So just to conclude, the main takeaway is that, um, yes, in Cuba, we're dealing with two major structures that block change, and both are two types of embargo. The restrictions that come from the United States, but certainly, and this is my key point, the fact that the state has been able to maintain a significant degree of a very repressive lid on society. And even those groups that have been given some space, and these are religious groups and the private sector, are so afraid of losing the gains that they have achieved that they have become hesitant when it comes to trying to support other groups. And so independent civil society face a incredibly hardline state and a certain degree of orphanage in trying to find partners with other actors of society in Cuba. Those are my remarks. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Javier. We will now hear from Ted Henkin, who is an associate professor of sociology at Baruch College of the City University of New York. He is the co-editor of Cuba's Digital Revolution, Citizen Innovation and State Policy. He has also co-edited Entrepreneurial Cuba, the Changing Policy Landscape. Ted will examine the role of technology, social media, and music in Cuba, as well as the growing demands by civil society including the assistance, the insistence on free expression, together with the Cuban government's attempts to manage societal pressures for an improved standard of living. Ted? Great. Uh, awesome to be here. Um, and it's a very rich discussion. I hope I can shed some light on two things. I want to divide my comments into kind of two categories or two parts. The first is to make some general comments about um, U.S. engagement, uh, the, the kind of questions behind it, the strategies or goals behind it, and the principles that uh, could guide it, do guide it, or are debated about it, uh, when, it when, when it comes to U.S. policy toward Cuba. Then I will focus more specifically on the issue that uh, Meg uh, mentioned, which is, um, you could call it digitally empowered or technologically empowered independent civil society. And there's been a lot of, of, of activity in that sphere over the last two and a half years, and especially over the last four months, 
that that uh, are, are ripe for analysis, and and we should be watching. But let me also um, thank Javier uh, for mentioning uh, a couple points that I'll, I'll I'll build on. One is the internal versus the external embargo. Um, um, what the Cubans call, uh, the government calls el bloqueo, but then the Cubans kind of tongue-in-cheek say, well, what about the auto-bloqueo, the self-embargo, self-imposed embargo? But I also wanted to touch on something that Javier said at the very end of his comments, which have, have to do with how certain groups that have been given or have achieved a certain level of independence and, 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 and a degree of free movement or free activity whether in the church or in, in, in the sector of uh, small uh, and medium-sized enterprises or uh, micro-enterprise, how they often become more conservative to preserve those spaces. And therefore, other groups, like the LGBT groups, uh, are orphaned. Uh, that was a really, I think, sharp, uh, sharply worded, but I think accurate word. What I want to point to uh, at the end of my comments is the fact that that wall that the government has successfully erected historically between those groups that it allows spaces to uh, and to a large degree can control or co-opt, it has walled them off and the, and the um, kind of agreement, spoken or unspoken, is don't associate with people who are beyond the pale, marginalized actors, whether they're dissidents or in the most recent case, uh, marginalized artists. Uh, um, and that wall, in the last four months, we've seen it break down. Not totally, but there's been some major holes poked into that wall of separation between those artists who are uh, embraced, uh, supported by, and work under the guidance or the control of the Ministry of Culture, in this case, versus the artists who are beyond the pale, outside the control and the uh, blessing of the state and therefore are repressed. Those groups came together and, and that was what was so significant uh, on November 27th, uh, which I'll go, come back to. So let me just say a few things about the general approach. And these are more, let's say, questions that I'm floating out there that maybe we can get to later or that uh, our viewers should maybe think about. Obama's approach to Cuba was one of empowerment of the Cuban people through engagement of Cuba, right? And the, the argument was it was a principled engagement. But one key question that we should ask as we're examining what to do now between Trump's policy and Biden's policy that may be uh, significantly different than Trump's and will likely uh, return to many of or some of the Obama uh, ideas, what principles are guiding that engagement? and what strategy is also moving it toward what ends. Also, one of the key elements within that are, and, 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 and um, Richard uh, mentioned this and also Michael, um, what moves should the U.S. be making unilaterally based on its own interests, based on humanitarian human rights, uh, or the idea of the rights of the Cuban people or the U.S. Uh, people, right? And which moves uh, toward engagement should be based on conditions or on the behavior of the, the Cuban government um, as a way of a strategy of pushing toward certain or enabling or uh, facilitating certain changes that the U.S. Uh, sees, sees as in, in its interests. Uh, a third point is the question about the embargo and, and the internal embargo. And actually, Javier really 
um, explain that very clearly. Um, but I think that it's, it's incumbent upon anyone who favors engagement, and I favor engagement, and I essentially always have, to also never forget the internal embargo and the fact that, as a number of our speakers have pointed out, the, 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 the freeze in the U.S.-Cuban thaw and the internal freezes and breaks on the development and the expansion of the private sector happened before Trump became president. They happened in 2016 in the months following uh, Obama's visit, as was mentioned before. So I think it, it was, as Richard said, a missed opportunity, but maybe it was a strategically missed opportunity because the Cuban government is much more comfortable with an enemy than with a friend coming from the United States, much more comfortable fighting Goliath than trying to make up with, uh, with Cain versus Abel. Maybe that's a, a mixed metaphor, but uh, there it is. Um, another part of that issue has to do with the wedge. Um, uh, Trump was much more open about this, but there's an idea that the engagement was aimed at empowering the Cuban people but the Trump administration said, yeah, we want to do that too, but we want to wedge that engagement and we want to isolate uh, the Cuban government. Is that possible? Can you successfully engage one and isolate the other? Um, uh, that, that's, a, that's a key question as we need to think about um, uh, as we examine policy. Um, a, a final issue before I jump into the last section of what I will say here has to do with the question that we need to answer in order to then make policy, and that question is, who really is in control of Cuba? Who governs in Cuba? Is it the, 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 the Cuban government, led by Miguel Díaz-Canel, or is there a truly powerful military power elite, a Ministry of the Interior, a Ministry of, uh, of the foreign, of Armed First Forces, GAESA, who really are calling most of the shots, and the government is really there to obey and implement those uh, ideas. Because if we are uh, uh, unclear on who rules, then who do we engage with and to what end? Who do we seek to uh, validate or legitimize, and who do we seek to isolate? Now, finally, let me end with a few comments about civil society. In December of 2018, the Cuban government, after years and years of demands from the people and years and years of, you could call it, um, inventos digitales, uh, digital inventions from the ground up, from the grassroots, uh, most commonly known or most, the biggest example of which is the paquete, but there was also SNET, a community network of gamers, etc. The Cuban government uh, allowed people to contract at a very high price internet on their cell phone, 3G mobile internet access. And the government has been making tons of money uh, since then, uh, hand over fist, because it is a, is a monopoly. The Atexa uh, telecommunications uh, is a monopoly. But that was also a Pandora's box of, of political civil headaches that they opened up. And we have been seeing over the last two and a half years the results of that. Not two months go by uh, without us seeing some kind of technology-enabled, usually cell phone-enabled, citizen mobilization, protest, convening, not just sharing information, which is also a key development because you've seen over the last five years in Cuba, and this has been increased and empowered by, um, by this 3G uh, phenomenon, 
uh, a whole host of uh, independent digital uh, media outlets that is a key part of this emerging digital civil society in Cuba. Um, and over the last two years, those independent outlets have received a huge number of new readers in Cuba. Almost all of them had most of their readers in, in Miami or in the U.S. or in Madrid or Mexico. Now most of them report, when I ask them about this, that their readers in Cuba are the majority. That's a significant development, and we've seen the results of that, that these changes haven't just resulted in cyberspace for civil society, but actual real space, because people are not content to remain in the cloud. They want to take to the streets. Now, their taking to the streets is, is quite tame relative to what we see in other places around the world, but uh, relative to Cuba's own history, it's quite unprecedented what we've seen. And this included independent LGBT march. Uh, it has included a number of protests in front of various ministries, protesting about the shutdown of the S-Net or protesting about um, issues regarding animal rights. Um, and um, there, there have been a m number of these. Of course, the most significant happened on the 26th of November of 2020, and then bled over into um, uh, three to five to six hundred people congregating for a whole day outside of the Ministry of Culture. Uh, this was sparked by the San Isidro movement, which was a, in terms of the government's view, beyond the pale movement of marginalized artists who came together in protest against Decree Law 349. Now, many of these people were also concerned about Decree Law 370. 349 essentially outlawed independent artistic production. 370 was mentioned before, I think, by, by, by Mike uh, Bustamante, had to do with um, uh, outlawing the uh, hosting of uh, information or the posting of information that was not in society's interest on websites, especially hosted in foreign countries. Both of these were moves against the emerging civil society, especially as it interfaced with the digital or the cultural spheres. So there was a protest that was led by uh, the San Isidro movement. There was a hunger strike that was raided by the government, but that raid and previous uh, crackdowns were captured and shared widely on Cuban cell phones. The Cuban government over the past three months, and starting really on that 26th of November, has started for the first time, at least in my knowledge, shutting off the Internet strategically for a few hours and has done it maybe three or four times over the last four months. This shows that they are very concerned about the ability to convene publics in actual physical space um, and that's what they saw the next day despite them shutting off the internet. Two months later this was replayed again and very symbolically uh, kind of a performance that was not planned. A group of young students, uh, young artists went again to the Ministry of the Culture uh, they congregated outside, and actual, the actual minister, Alpidio, uh, I want to call him Alpidio Valdez, but it's uh, Alpidio Alonso, he came out and, um, and very symbolically swatted away a cell phone uh, of an independent journalist who was filming him, basically giving a swat to the independent use of social media and the in Internet and the independent digital media um, pioneers. Um, and then this culminated in the, uh, the viral music video, uh, Patria y Vida, uh, which uh, uh, did more 
then all the other things are built on them because it included a, a very you know clear Afro-Cuban element. You know, the, all the people involved in the production of that film, of the music video, are Afro-Cuban. But it also included people who had pre- before. You know, uh, uh, Javier said about being orphans, right? People who had before kept their mouth shut, successful international music artists about political issues in order to be able to travel in and out of Cuba. Um, they, uh, they stopped keeping their mouth shut and they joined together with these marginalized artists in Cuba and created a music video that denounced the government's uh, policy and, uh, of silencing critics and of separating people into revolutionaries and counter-revolutionaries or having forcing people to choose between the country or the fatherland and death. And it said, no, fatherland or de- and death, no. Fatherland and life, yes. So I'll stop there, uh, um, and we have a lot to talk about. And I look forward to hearing from, from Bill um, as he closes us out. Thank you very much, Ted. We'll now hear from Bill Leo Grande, who is the Associate Vice Provost of Academic Affairs at American University and a professor in the Department of Government. He is also the author of Our Own Backyard, the United States and Central America from 1977 to 1992, and the co-author of the landmark book, Back Channel to Cuba, the hidden history of negotiations between Washington and Havana. He will suggest the directions of U.S.-Cuban bilateral relations under President Biden, as well as what to expect in the near term related to the restoration of remittances and tourism, as well as restaffing the U.S. Embassy and Consulate in Havana. Bill? Thank you, Meg. And uh, thanks also to the Institute of the Americas for organizing this webinar. It's a pleasure to be together again with such a distinguished group of colleagues and friends. So on March 9th, a reporter asked White House Press Secretary uh, Jen Psaki uh, about Cuba policy and what, was, what the Biden administration was going to do. And she replied that Cuba policy was currently under review, but was not a, quote, top priority, unquote, for the president. Well, the very next day, Ned Price, the spokesperson over at the State Department, said that Cuba was under active review, the Cuba policy, um, and it was not on the back burner. So I think that's that signals to you right away that there may be some disagreement inside the Biden administration about just how fast to move in terms of rolling out a new Cuba policy. I do think we can expect to see something in the next month or two. Uh, what will it look like? I think, first of all, we can be reasonably confident that President Biden will fulfill his campaign promises about Cuba. And he said essentially the following things. First, that he would remove the sanctions put in place by President Trump that hurt Cuban families. And I think that obviously means the uh, cutoff in remittances and also uh, air service. Trump administration cut off U.S. air connections to every city in Cuba except Havana and even limited those, making it very difficult for Cuban Americans to visit family in the interior of the island. Second, uh, Obama said that he would restore travel. 
because, and I'm quoting, Americans, especially Cuban Americans, are the best ambassadors of freedom. Third, he said that he would resume the diplomatic dialogue with the Cuban government that Trump had cut off. Uh, at the end of the Obama administration, there were 17 different discussions underway between U.S. and Cuban diplomats on issues of mutual interest. Now, that probably means also having to restaff the U.S. Embassy in Havana, uh, which, is, uh, which was downsized by President Trump over the so-called Havana Syndrome, which was injuries to U.S. personnel uh, who were serving in Havana. And I'll have some more to say about that a little later. Uh, and hopefully it also means reopening the consular section of the embassy in order to begin once again giving immigrant visas to Cubans. The United States is obligated under an agreement we signed with Cuba in 1994 to provide a minimum of 20,000 immigrant visas a year to Cubans. Well, the Trump administration ignored that and wasn't giving out more than a few hundred or, or a thousand immigrant visas each year to Cubans. Uh, given the state of the Cuban economy, reopening that legal and safe avenue of migration is really critical. And finally, I think that President Biden will take Cuba off the terrorism list. Uh, as you may know, uh, Trump put Cuba on the terrorism list in the last weeks of his administration. He did it for the purposes of complicating President Biden's ability to resume relations with Cuba. Uh, the administration has specifically said that that is under review, and so I expect that uh, that they'll do that. That'll take a few months because of the technicalities that are required to do it, uh, but I don't have too much doubt that they'll get that underway reasonably soon. Now, having said that, I don't think that the Biden administration is going to just pick up where President Obama left off and fully embrace a policy of engagement, uh, particularly a high visibility policy of engagement, the way that President Obama did in his last two years. Uh, and I think that there are, I think we're likely to see a, a policy that looks more like President Obama's policy in, say, 2009 or 2011, before the decision to actually try to normalize the relationship. Now, on the brighter side, if you're in favor of engagement, there are a number of regulations that uh, Obama put in place to allow more business connections between Cuba and the United States, more commercial interactions that President Trump never bothered to reverse. Now, the Treasury Department stopped giving out licenses to businesses that wanted to go to Cuba. And of course, the businesses stopped asking because they knew that they weren't likely to get licenses. But under the new administration, if a business wanted to, say, apply for a license to export consumer goods to Cuba, they might find a Treasury Department that was a lot more receptive to that request. So uh, I don't think that uh, you're going to see, though, a, a very active or aggressive policy on the administration's part. So why is that? I think there are both policy obstacles and also political obstacles. So in terms of, of the policy obstacles, first is the so-called Havana Syndrome, the fact that about two dozen U.S. personnel, diplomats, intelligence officers, and family members underwent injuries in Havana in 2000, 
2016 and 2017. Uh, it happened in other countries too, but the most, the largest number of people were, were injured in Havana. We still don't know exactly what the cause of that was, um, but it led to the downsizing of the embassy so that today there's only a skeletal crew in Havana. Restaffing the embassy uh, poses a, a difficult policy problem because in order to do it, you have to be able to assure that the U.S. diplomats serving there are serving there safely. Uh, and that is going to involve uh, a lot of, of technical discussions in Washington and also probably some discussions with the Cubans. The second policy issue is Cuba's support for the Maduro government in Venezuela. President Obama separated the issue of Cuba and Venezuela when he was president. Uh, so even though Cuba was supporting uh, the Venezuelan government back then, uh, Obama said that a bilateral improvement in relations with Cuba served U.S. interests, and so he was going to go forward with it. But of course, the situation is different today. First of all, the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela is considerably worse than it was back then, and it's also spread to the region. So now there's a humanitarian crisis because of Venezuelan refugees leaving the country. Trump's strategy of trying to force Maduro out through sanctions has clearly failed, but it's not entirely clear that there is a path to a political settlement in Venezuela. Republicans will surely attack President Biden for an opening to Cuba, uh, declaring that he's rewarding Havana despite its, its bad behavior in Venezuela. But I would argue that at the same time as this is a difficult issue to deal with, if we believe that the only way to reach a political settlement in Venezuela is through some kind of political dialogue between the government and the opposition, Cuba is going to be absolutely essential because of its support for the government. You can't really settle the Venezuelan problem without dealing with the Cubans. So that's going to be an issue that the Biden administration is going to have to figure out how to parse. Then there are three political obstacles, it seems to me, that make it difficult for President Biden to fully embrace a policy of normalizing relations with Cuba. One, of course, is the, the issue that Michael talked about, uh, the Democrats are very concerned about the shift in the Cuban-American vote that we saw in 2022. They're very hopeful about winning back the two congressional seats that they lost in South Florida in the effort to maintain control of the House in the midterm elections. And so they're not going to want to do anything that might make that a, a, a tougher uphill climb in South Florida than it already is. Second, there are disagreements within the administration among the people on the Latin American policy team about whether re-engagement, full re-engagement, is actually the right policy for the United States. Uh, Juan Gonzalez, who's the NSC director for Latin America, has publicly expressed some doubts about uh, the success of Obama's policy and whether it makes sense to try to go back to it. And finally, of course, you have Senator Menendez. Senator Menendez uh, has a clear position against an improvement in relations with Cuba. It's a 50-50 Senate, so President Biden needs Senator Menendez's vote on absolutely everything. And Senator Menendez has made it clear in the past that he's willing to hold unrelated uh, legislation hostage 
to the administration and administration's policy on Cuba. So how do we sum all this up? Uh, I think there's no doubt we're going to see an improvement in U.S.-Cuban relations, a reconnection diplomatically between the two countries, a lifting of the sanctions that have hurt uh, the standard of living of Cubans the most, which is to say the cutoff and remittances and the reductions in travel. But I don't think that we're going to be on a fast track toward truly normalizing our bilateral relationship, at least not until after the 2022 midterms when we see how well the Democrats do. Thanks. Thank you, Bill. And I would like to pose the first question, if I might. Several of you mentioned civil society and the apparent increase activity within civil society. As early as the 1993-94, during the Cuban crisis, you had street demonstrations in Regla, a working class suburb of Havana. And you also more recently had street demonstrations, as Ted Henkin mentioned, and Javier Corrales, as well as massive protests in Santiago over ineffective or inefficient delivery of government services, particularly related to transport. Would the panelists like to comment on the absence of a agreed upon agenda on the part of these disparate civil society groups, as well as the absence of a national leadership of civil society and clear organizational strategies to mobilize a mass base? Uh, well, of course, uh, as was emphasized by uh, Javier and, and Ted in particular, uh, uh, organizing in Cuba is, is extremely difficult. Uh, the government, of course, uh, has extensive surveillance of all types. Uh, and while individual expression is tolerated, organi organizational uh, groupings uh, for protest uh, is, is something not welcomed, if not actually prohibited by the regime. So it starts from there. But in my experience, actually, nevertheless, you do see people getting together. For example, the private sector. The private sector folks uh, who have had a hard time, of course, under COVID uh, with the absence of tourism. Uh, nevertheless, they continue to publish magazines. Uh, they have access to uh, various uh, social media sites. Uh, they do meet among themselves. Of course, they're all friends. They get together at clubs uh, and bars and restaurants, etc. Uh, so there is, I would say, an emerging, an emerging uh, organization uh, within uh, within the private sector. Uh, as was emphasized by uh, Javier, uh, the church has been cautious, but nevertheless, if you walk around uh, the cities in Cuba on a Sunday, uh, you're amazed at all the chanting that you hear coming out of the, the evangelicals' uh, buildings and also, of course, uh, some of the Catholic churches that have been allowed to reopen. Now, during the debate on the constitutional reform process, as the panelists will recall, uh, there was an effort to uh, legalize uh, same-sex marriage, if I recall, and the churches, both evangelical and Catholic, came out strongly against 
those reforms and the government actually backpedaled. I mention that only as an indicator of the capacity of some independent groups to around at least certain issues uh, make their voices heard. Uh, now, all this isn't to say that we're suddenly in, in, the, pro- in the presence of a liberal democracy, uh, but nevertheless, uh, th- there, there is some room, and, and I would say growing room for maneuver. Uh, and uh, again, the extent to which the U.S. is seen as hostile and the government can accuse uh, uh, any uh, independent voices of being uh, fifth columns uh, of, uh, of subversion, that makes life more difficult. So that's always been the argument for a more open uh, international environment, which the Europeans, who have more experience in these sorts of things from Eastern Europe, uh, that's what they've always advocated uh, as a better approach. So uh, I'm interested in hearing what uh, Ted and others have to say. Thank you. Ted? I think that one of the, one of the issues or one of the dilemmas whenever um, you see change in Cuba or when you kind of like evaluate the level or the extent of the meaning of that change is do you give credit to the government for allowing it or do you give credit to civil society for creating it, right? And it's, you know, it depends on, I think most of the changes have been against the government's will and have been born in civil society and forced on the government, um, whether they come from the church whether they come from the LGBT community or the business community. Um, I would like to just focus on media, partly because of the internet issue and the expansion of internet access in Cuba, but also because um, we often just assume, because it's been the case for so long, that it's not worth talking about journalism, right? Um, The case is that the Cuban government exercises a monopoly over the media over journalism, but that monopoly has eroded. Yes, there have been and there are uh, ecclesiastical publications. Uh, as Richard mentions, there is a there are uh, there's a group of new digital publications that focus on business, on um, you could say entertainment, nightlife, sports. But uh, and, and that's something that we can celebrate as a sign of this effervescence as the, for, of, of this space. But at the same time, while those spaces have existed, have grown, and the government has tolerated them, the government has also viciously cracked down both in, in the street and people's homes or arresting them or harassing them or detaining them or driving them into exile, but also and the media and the state media has uh, defamed and basically called anyone in the independent media uh, subversives and mercenaries. And this has gone on over the past three, two or three months. And the main uh, news uh, section uh, and the nightly news in Cuba. Um, and, and, and this is not just focusing on, let's say, certain elements of, you might say, the extreme critical independent media, uh, groups that have been very, you know, relatively uh, moderate, responsible in terms of their funding sources, like Periodismo de Barrio or El Toque, and groups like Cuba Posible that kind of grew out of an organization and a, and a, and a, a media um, experiment that began within the Catholic Church, um, Espacio Laical, 
they basically were driven out as well, driven out of business and driven out of the country. So at the one, on the one hand, you have this growth of space. Um, you know, who do we reward for that change? Um, we also have this new policy toward uh, the private sector that may actually lead to the recognition legally of, uh, of small and medium-sized enterprises, which would be a step much further than the self-employment that currently exists. But at the same time, simultaneously, you have a, a, a very obvious uptick and repression against independent media uh, because that is reaching more people through the expansion of Internet access. I, I don't know what order we're going in here, but I, if I can just add something on. It's a free-for-all. Um, it's a free-for-all. Okay, so I'm going to be like, uh, you know, I'm Cuban-American, like Cuban, Cuban. In, the, in, the, in the line, right? Um, no, I, I just wanted to go back to one one thing that you said, um, Megan, in your question, which is sort of how we perceive the perhaps disparate uh, uh, face of civil society, uh, quote unquote, lack of unity and, and singular purpose. Um, you know, I suppose I have a slightly different perspective on that. I mean, on the one hand, I, I, I think that the the effervescence of, of different voices, as cacophonous as they may be, I think that can be very salutary um, in, in certain ways. Um, and I think it's certainly an interesting dynamic um, to, to watch and follow and, and, and a new one, right? Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, picking, piggybacking off of a little bit what, what Ted had said, said, I have seen over the last couple of years, you know, not a, not a, a constitution of a united front, but, a, but a, a certain consolidation of positions among civil society groups, um, media outlets that say four or five years ago, to the extent that they existed, were sort of more clearly on opposite, um, in opposite uh, positions vis-a-vis -vis events in, in, inside Cuba, vis-a-vis -vis the U.S.-Cuba relationship. Um, I think Cuba Posula is a good example. It's an organization that sort of fashioned itself as a, as a think tank, but really kind of a, a, a centrist. And they were sort of in a derogatory way labeled that by sort of, um, you know, some voices in, in Cuba. But, but they, they were big supporters of U.S.-Cuba normalization, big time. Uh, they sort of took the language of the government reforms that Raul Castro had begun to implement in 2010 in terms of, you know, economics, certainly as kind of, you know, gave them the benefit of the doubt to a certain degree and kind of wanted to accompany those, those reforms, push them, prod them, right. Um, created spaces for, de for debate within civil society and into that sector of civil society that may be more linked to the state because it's actually a, a somewhat porous boundary. And yet, as Ted says, you know, in, in the wake of the Obama visit, and then certainly in their early Trump years, they were really, um, they were, they were pushed to, to the side. And so what I, that is a good example. I have seen organizations that come out of that moderate, uh, you know, position that you want, might think that's a, a more favorable actor for the Cuban government to try to deal with, be pushed into sort of more um, direct positions of opposition, not through their own will, but because of um, the sort of actions that have been taken against them or sort of the rhetorical shots that they've seen. So I have seen actually a kind of a crossing of boundaries within civil society. Um, again, not a completely united front, but sort of alliances, solidarities that I think are, are new and different and, and quite interesting to watch. If I can jump in and say, I, I think that, um, you know, this is a really heterogeneous um, landscape here. Um, so for example, a lot of the demonstrations that we've seen recently are by 
what are really incipient interest groups that have an interest in, in a very focused interests in particular issues. And when those issues don't really challenge uh, the fundamental pillars of the system, the state is willing to accommodate them to a certain degree. So you take the animal rights people, for example, or the LGBTQ community, or uh, the feminists against domestic violence. These are all uh, these are all groups that are critical of, of the current situation, sometimes critical of government policy, but are not calling for a change in the basic pillars of the system. It's when you cross that line, I think, that you see the state become not accommodating at all, but really bring the full weight of of its ability to uh, to coerce and repress people in uh, you know into view. Then, then there's another whole segment of, of demonstrations we've begun to see recently, which are really spontaneous demonstrations of people who are upset about you know, something in particular and a number of them take to the streets either because word spreads on social media or sometimes word just spreads in the neighborhood by mouth and people come out and, and, and make demands of government for restoration of, of services of various kinds. Um, there, there doesn't seem to me, apart from uh, some of the, uh, the folks that Michael was talking about, there doesn't seem to me to be a great deal of cross-communication uh, among these, these various groups. And as I say, as long as they're not demanding things that really imperil the system itself, I think the government's going to try to be accommodated. I would add one point. We as Americans tend very much to look to civil society as the source of protest, unrest, and social change. But I think actually uh, that rather contradicts our analysis of the Cuban system, which is to say it's a very strong state and it's the state which ultimately decides most things. So uh, now the problem with analyzing the Cuban state, of course, is very opaque and hard to get access. Uh, so one has to look for like cr criminologists in the, in the old days during the Cold War. What are some signs of possible uh, division between, let's say, hardliners and reformers? Uh, but I think that's really the essence. Uh, divisions within the state, there are some who just want to hold the hard line until they die and that's, uh, and that's it. And there are others who are more forward-looking and think the world has changed and we're going to need to change too. And how do we do that without suffering the fate of Gorbachev, which is to say a complete societal or state collapse? Uh, and that gets back to U.S. policy, because if the goal is just to strangle the state, how does that help to foster debate and change within the state? Uh, and that's what the Obama policy was really all about, much more sophisticated, trying to create more space to allow for debate within the state apparatus. And then the gradual movement of many in the state to link in to foreign investment, to the private sector, so they see it in their interests to be part of a more global and a more open system. So focus on, however opaque, the state apparatus as really the future source for change. Thank you, Richard. That answers to a degree a question that uh, was posed by a member of the audience, and that is basically who governs Cuba? And clearly there are individuals increasingly who operate within the state, are what we would call civil servants, including in some cases policymakers at senior levels but who also have extensive networks outside of the state apparatus. And increasingly, we've seen some individuals, 
who I refer to as amphibians, who transcend the boundaries between the state and the non-state sectors, which historically in Cuba were pretty well defined since 59. Today, they've become much more porous, and therefore you have a opportunity as virtually every one of the panelists have indicated for the potential for a great deal of increased debate within Cuba by Cubans over how best to create a society in which there is free expression, in which there is a higher standard of living and other issues that are currently very commonly discussed amongst Cubans. Thank you. Um, it's been a rich discussion. We've got a, a few more minutes. We've got uh, four minutes for uh, some additional questions. Um, so I'd like to pose a question from the audience that, that was raised by one of the members of the audience. Um, what possibility do you see for any U.S.-Cuba uh, cooperation finding a path towards humanitarian relief, political co um, coexistence in, um, in Venezuela with a path um, over time representation in meaningful ways of multiple perspectives? Yeah, well, so Venezuela, is, as I was saying, is a very tough issue. Uh, the Cubans' had position on Venezuela is that they're prepared to uh, play a constructive role in trying to find a political settlement in Venezuela, so long as it's a settlement that the Venezuelan government agrees to and that the United States government agrees to. And the, the United States is thrown in there because the Cuban position is that no settlement is going to work unless the United States is prepared to accept it. Um, the difficulty, and, the, and I should say the Cubans have, have played a constructive role in the settlement of international conflicts previously. They did that in Southern Africa when they had troops in Angola. They did it in Central America in the 1980s. And most recently they did it in Colombia, um, you know, bringing the FARC and the Colombian government to the bargaining table and getting a peace agreement there. So it's not unprecedented that they would be willing to play a constructive role. I think the difficulty is that I'm not sure that the two sides in Venezuela are interested in a political settlement at this moment. It seems to me that the opposition is, is really fragmented now about whether it should try to resume participation in the electoral system or not. Uh, the government is in a much stronger position than it was a year or two ago, and the US sanctions policy has clearly failed. So uh, getting the two parties involved to be willing to sit down at the table and, and try to seek some kind of agreement is gonna to be tough. That's especially true because President Biden's position has been very clear. Uh, he does not see Maduro as a legitimate president. And he believes that Venezuela needs free and fair elections that allow the Venezuelan people to pick their own leaders. So that's a tough hurdle to get a Maduro government to agree to. So I think for the time being, we're probably stuck in stalemate there. Yeah, thank you. Well, I've got a question for Michael. Um, um, what was more important in the Florida 2020 election, um, huge, um, huge swing towards Trump? Was it the Cuban or uh, Venezuelan diaspora, in your opinion? Um, well, I don't have to go on opinion. I, I'm, I'm happy to go on poll results that I, I, I followed. Um, and I'm glad to get this question because I was a little bit worried that I had um, given a mistaken impression that the sort of swing toward Trump among Cuban voters was such a decisive, decisive thing in Florida or even at the level of Miami-Dade County. It was not. 
Um, the swing toward Cuban voters was um, the swing toward Trump among Cuban voters in South Florida was significant, especially at the local level. I think it's a it says much, uh, perhaps most about the weakness of the Democratic Party's efforts um, in South Florida in the context of this campaign. But the interesting thing is that the biggest swing among Latino voters in Florida, I'm just going to speak about speaking about Latino voters, was not among Cuban voters. It was among, among non-Latino Hispanics, among them Venezuelans, but also Colombians in South Florida, Brazilians. Um, you know, we have the entire region here. So I think I think that uh, you know, from the perspective of the political arguments that are being made about U.S.-Cuban engagement um, and the extent to which some Democratic Party uh, actors in South Florida may want to tell the Biden administration to go it slow for fear of you know burning their chances of taking back those two congressional seats in 2022 i think we have to we have to bear that in mind cuba policy was perhaps a piece of an overall um electoral uh campaign landscape in which sort of that anti-socialist message became so charged and frankly filled with lots of misinformation but it really wasn't as deciding a factor um as i think some of the some of the most immediate reporting suggested that it was thank you michael well, i think that this this concludes our um our webinar, I want to thank uh, the panelists, um, uh, Richard, Michael, Bill, um, Javier, Ted, and Meg. Thank you so much for moderating. We've had a rich discussion. Um, I also want to thank UC uh, TV, as well as, again, the Burnham Foundation for sponsoring our webinar series. And uh, thank you all for uh, taking part um, in this um, lively discussion. So with this, I think we'll, we'll conclude our, our session. Thank you. And have all a good right, day. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.